Hello and welcome to episode 1336 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs. Hello. So if you look at the recent Roto World news, Johnny Cueto, he's not going to pitch in 2020, but Johnny Cueto is down 20 pounds and congratulations to Johnny Cueto. It's a lot of weight to lose, but he's not the winner, not even of the day. Luis Gahara said Friday he's lost 35 to 40 pounds over the offseason. And Brett Cecil said Friday that he lost 42 pounds over the offseason. <laughs> that is 100 pounds between three players that's been lost. That's a, that's a lot of pounds. Yeah, well, maybe Cueto is in mourning. Maybe he's not eating because of his horse, Popeye. He's another guy who doesn't have to pitch anytime soon, so doesn't really have to keep himself in shape. By the way, there was a follow-up on the Popeye story. Evidently, the horse was killed by poisonous grasshoppers, which I didn't realize was a thing. I've, I've never eaten grasshoppers, not even at Safeco Field, but evidently there are poisonous ones and horses shouldn't eat them. I didn't know that horses ate grasshoppers. <laughs> no, I learned a lot from, from that <laughs> update. Yeah, it is funny when you see guys getting in the so-called best shape of their lives, often that shape can be very different. With some guys, they bulked up and they showed up with 20 new pounds of muscle. And other guys, it's dropping weight, which is not surprising because some people are underweight and some people are overweight. But it's also interesting when you see the different regimens that they followed over the winter because some guys, it's like, oh, last year I didn't lift enough weights and I wore down over the course of a season. And so I've really bulked up this time. Whereas other guys will go in completely the other direction. We'll say, I bulked up too much last year, and now I've just been doing yoga and flexibility exercises and core strength stuff. And so there's always a, a different story, but it all boils down to best shape of my life. Best shape of your life. And it turns out there is a lot of misinformation when it comes to physical fitness and what might be best <laughs> for an individual player. So you can give somebody advice that, well, your flexibility would improve if you actually got stronger. You should bulk up. You'll hit the ball harder. You'll throw the ball faster. But it turns out sometimes it's not true. And the fact that mm -hmm. you see so many players who just kind of uh, ride the, the BMI roller coaster suggests that not everybody has it quite figured out. And I don't know, maybe that just means they have the wrong people in their ears. But in any case, Ryan yeah. Fearabend is back into organized baseball throwing a knuckleball. <laughs> well, it wasn't that long ago that people used to tell baseball players not to lift weights because they would get too big and bulky and Either they would tear things or they wouldn't be able to hit or it would decrease their bat speed or something. Lots of bunk that wasn't backed up by anything, but that has changed in recent years. I feel like your response didn't do anything to acknowledge Ryan Fearbend. <laughs> I did not. I just, I moved right on from Ryan Fearbend. <laughs> I am always interested in the guy who just comes out of nowhere with a knuckleball all of a sudden, but it doesn't work out. I mean, almost every time it doesn't pin out into the guy coming back and throwing a great knuckleball for 10 more years. But I'm always rooting for those people because there are just not a lot of knuckleballers left. One of the problems with looking at a Ryan Fearbend, I'm going to keep doing this, looking at Ryan Fearbend on baseball reference is that, at least last I checked, it, he's, he's been pitching in Korea and his 2018 stats aren't actually included. And so you go there and you think, oh, what happened to Ryan Fearbend? But he, he pitched in 2018. He had a 4-3 ERA in Korea and he only walked 38 batters and 163 in the third innings. This is Look, I don't know what Ryan Fearbend is going to do. He's probably not going to make it to the major leagues and he's probably not going to be good in the major leagues. But this might be the first Blue Jays move that just makes my brain ring out Carson Sestouli did this so <laughs> yeah. I'm going to without without asking without uh, inquiring I'm going to assume that Carson Sestouli is responsible for the Blue Jays signing knuckleballer 33 year old Ryan Fearbent yeah that that would sound like a Carson Sestouli move 
In the genre of players reporting with different sizes, one of our guests on this episode actually, Matt Gelb, tweeted when the Phillies reported for spring training that Michael Franco looks like half of his former self, and he meant that in terms of dropping weight. Imagine if a player was actually half of his former weight or mass when he showed up for the start of a season. That seems like it would probably be uh, deleterious to to your performance if you were half the size that you were. Well, so what was it last year? Aaron Judge weighed in at, what, about 280? Was that accurate? I don't know exactly where he was, but Aaron Judge... Uh, according to baseball reference, was at 282, and wasn't Ronald Torres like 152, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, wasn't that the biggest spread, at least in terms of official weight? So if Aaron Judge showed up one spring with, I guess, his build, you can't really shrink your build, but right. Ronald Torres's weight. Well, okay, hold on. What would be a bigger problem? Aaron Judge shows up one spring at Ronald Torres's weight, or Ronald Torres shows up one spring at Aaron Judge's weight? <laughs> it sounds like some email questions that we've answered in the past. I would guess, hmm, I mean, probably like Ronald Torres can't get that much worse than Ronald Torres already is, right? <laughs> like if Ronald Torres were very bad, he's not great to begin with. So in terms of just like sheer impact on war, I would think that Aaron Judge losing half his weight would probably be a, a bigger impact than Ronald Torres doubling his <laughs> I guess that's fair. But, you know, maybe somebody's going to tell Ronald Torres to bulk up. I guess we should talk, sticking with the Yankees, while we've been recording this sort of, the Yankees agreed to a contract extension. You got yeah. you got thoughts on Luis Severino sticking around? Well, let me first say that this is a team preview podcast, and in a few minutes we will be getting to the Minnesota Twins with Aaron Gleeman and the aforementioned Matt Gelb to talk about the Phillies. So that is coming up soon. But yes, I did want to just briefly banter about a few pitching trends here because you and I have both written pitching trend pieces of a sort this week. But this seems to be another one, and maybe it's not just pitcher-specific, but it could be. We talked about Aaron Nola's extension with the Phillies the other day, and yes, now we have a Luis Severino extension with the Yankees. We also have Max Kepler and Jorge Polanco extensions with the Twins. This is extension season. There are always a bunch of extensions around this time of year, but it does seem as if the Nola extension and the Severino extension and possibly the Kepler extension are kind of of a piece here. I was just scanning your Fangraphs chat and you've got a bunch of questions about whether we're just going to see a rash of extensions for arbitration eligible players because of fears of free agency. And you essentially said yes. Yeah. I I haven't run the numbers yet. I'll probably do that after we record this podcast. But it's also too early to look at the numbers because this offseason isn't yet complete. Extension season lasts right up until opening day. And then players don't want the distraction of negotiating extensions. But it makes all the sense in the world, in theory, that we would start to see more extensions, not only because free agency has been devalued, but also because players have concerns about a future work stoppage. And so they want to get theirs while while they can. So we'll see if it bears out in practice. All conditions are always different, but I think there's every reason in the world to think that we are going to start seeing more and more of these extensions. We already see a few every single spring, and now we've seen, what, like five or six already this week? Spring training just started. Yeah, and the Severino extension seems like a particularly team-friendly run, right? And as always, it makes sense from the player's perspective in that they're getting much richer and getting enough money to live off for the rest of their lives if they're careful with with it. And so you understand why they do that. Of course, Severino was about to make multiple millions of dollars in arbitration anyway, or, or could have. So it's not as if he was necessarily lacking funds. So 
Does this seem to you like a, a particularly egregious extension that a, a player shouldn't have signed, acknowledging that it's it's difficult to pass judgment on a player for agreeing to become very wealthy? What I like about this one more for Severino, I mean, Severino was already going to make at least $4.4 million in arbitration if he didn't sign an extension. So he was, he was already going to have that much money. And then even in the worst case scenario where he just blows out his arm tomorrow, he would still be tendered a contract by the Yankees next year and he would make some millions of dollars. So Severino was already going to be rich, just moving forward without doing anything. But what I do like about this, it is, it's team friendly. Louis Severino would have almost certainly made more than $40 million over the course of his arbitration years, but he only signed away one free agent year. And you think back to all those old contracts, like the, the Chris Sale contract or the Matt Moore contract or Madison Bumgarner, whatever contracts you want to point to, and they would sign away like two or three or, or four would be free agent years. So at least this leaves mm-hmm. Severino more of an opportunity to get to the market, which who knows what the free agent market's going to look like in five years. Maybe it'll be fine. There's going to be, there's still a lot of money in free agency, even if it's not what it was. So Severino didn't sign yeah. away too much of his future rights. He was already going to be club controlled. So that's, that's not so bad. Yeah. I almost wonder whether the unified messaging that we've seen from the players lately If players are all very concerned about free agency, there are some good reasons to be, but maybe they're too concerned about free agency. It's possible that it could come back to bite them if all the players are thinking, okay, we're not going to get paid if we actually hit the open market, so we better sign these team-friendly extensions then all of them will be on these sort of low-dollar deals, and maybe they will shoot themselves in the feet to a certain extent. So I don't know how you legislate out the need or desire to sign this sort of extension. You'd have to have a higher minimum salary or higher arbitration figures or less team control. Something structural would have to change to make it not in the player's best interest because teams can always absorb the risk of any one extension whereas players cannot absorb the risk of their one career going wrong because that's all they have. Right. And it's it's a little surprising to see some of these extensions happening with players looking at arbitration because when players are earlier in their careers and they're still on roughly league minimum salaries it's maybe easier to to dazzle them by dropping like tens of millions of dollars in front of them as a guarantee. But Mm -hmm. so many of these players recently have already been looking at millions of dollars guaranteed to them through arbitration. Or in the cases of of certain players, like Aaron Nola had a signing bonus in the draft of $3.3 million. Like these players are already wealthy, you know, wealthier than you and I, not maybe wealthy by major league standards. But still, this is, I I do look forward to running some of the numbers and seeing how this actually works out, seeing what last offseason looked like relative to some of the ones previous, because there's every reason in the world that we would see more and more of this and and you're right this is kind of how it snowballs if if players if veteran players start circulating all these fears about free agency then you're going to get more of these players signing below market extensions and then everything just gets worse and worse and mm-hmm. worse at least from from the that standpoint the yeah. product on the field is still the same but you know now we're this is an era where we're not just talking about the product on the field anymore right all right so i look forward to your findings on that maybe we'll talk about them next time and maybe we can save a max kepler question for aaron in a minute but the other trends i was alluding to you wrote about velocity and what seems to be a stagnation in league-wide velocity i wrote about pitching prospects so i'll just summarize that first everyone knows the saying the sabermetric credo From the 90s, there's no such thing as a pitching prospect, and that has always been something of an exaggeration, not literally true, but these days it actually seems to be more accurate than ever. If you look at the top of top prospect lists, regardless of the source, 
you'll just see a lot fewer pitchers than there used to be. It's been a long time since we saw a number one ranked pitcher. If you scan the lists this year, I think Fangraphs has three pitchers in its top 20 prospects, and that's including a two-way player, Brendan McKay. A lot of other sources have one pitcher in the top 11 or 10 or 12. It's usually Forrest Whitley is like fourth or fifth or seventh or something, and then so a while before you get to the next pitcher. So I talked to a bunch of prospect rankers about this, and it does seem to be a real trend. J.J. Cooper at Baseball America was telling me that they've had a lot of internal conversations about this. They're aware of it. They've talked to people in the industry who have said that this reflects what team lists look like. There's just less confidence in pitchers. Now, there are just as many pitching prospects in, say, a top 100. We haven't seen a big decline there. But they're not clustered close to the top anymore. They're just distributed toward the bottom of the list because the top 10, the top 20, those are supposed to be your blue chippers, your no-doubters, the guys you can really count on. And pitchers cannot be counted on, as we know. They have a lot of injuries. They're riskier. If you look at the historical outcomes for top 10 hitting prospects versus top 10 pitching prospects, the hitting prospects always outperform the pitchers. So this is just kind of a, a correction that maybe has been a long time coming, I think, public prospect rankers have sort of been seduced by the ceiling of players and now maybe they're considering the realistic and expected outcomes a little more so it's both injuries and it's also the changes in pitcher usage where even if you get a really good starting pitcher he's throwing 200 innings now instead of 250 and maybe he doesn't even get to 200 so a good pitcher just maybe does not make the sort of impact that a good pitcher made in the past so That's the trend I wrote about, and obviously that is related to velocity because velocity has had something to do with the epidemic of injuries, but you have found that it seems like the increase at least is slowing or has actually stopped. That's something I actually stumbled upon for the first time live on this podcast. You might remember a few weeks ago, I was looking up some data and I thought, oh, this looks a little curious. And looking at some of the trends, the, the whole velocity surge that I think we all wrote about a few years ago where the league-wide velocities were on the up-and-up, has plateaued. Doesn't mean it's it's done growing, for sure, but rookies aren't throwing harder now than uh, than they did a few years ago. The league-wide fastball velocities haven't increased that much, and the rate of pitches thrown above 95 or 100 miles per hour hasn't meaningfully increased in the last few years. And so it, it makes you wonder, maybe players have, maybe conditioning was improvements were that easy to implement, and now everybody is already throwing a at or around 100%, of course, is more to pitching well in the majors than just throwing as hard as you can. But, you know, we're, we're kind of pushing up against physiological boundaries. And you, as far as I know, if a body is created to top out at 97 or 98, you can't make that body throw 99 or 100. There's nothing you can do. Now, I'm sure if I were to have a conversation with the people at Driveline, maybe they could steer me to something maybe a little more nuanced. And and maybe you can develop tendon strength or strength in other areas. But generally, we the, the harder major league pitchers are throwing, the closer we are to the limit of how hard major league pitchers can throw. And so it's just interesting to see the last few years that there is no real movement anymore. Of course, strikeout rates continues to increase bit by bit, but I think you and I both understand why that would be, because pitchers are trying to get more strikeouts, they have the data advantage over the hitters, and they're throwing fewer fastballs. The threat of the hard fastball makes a changeup or a slider or a curveball more dangerous. And mm-hmm. so as pitchers are able to optimize their repertoires, of course, there are going to be more strikeouts. Batters are not disincentivized, really, from striking out, because strikeouts go hand in hand with productive plate appearances a lot of the time. So it's not pitcher velocity that's causing the strikeouts to continue to go up, but this does now make me reconsider whether 
the league needs to move the mound back. But I am still interested in, in maybe lowering the mound and, and seeing what that would do. Yeah, and part of it is pitcher usage has increased velocity too because you have starters not going as deep into games so they don't have to pace themselves. You have guys coming in for an inning at a time. Maybe the pace of change there, I mean, that still seems to be changing somewhat where you have guys facing the order for the third time less and less often. So you'd think that that would continue to drive velocity up at least a little bit, even in the absence of actual changes on an individual basis, which we know that fastball speed is more mutable than it once was. There are all these science-backed programs now for increasing velocity, but there are limits there. And I don't know, maybe the, the pace of change has slowed a little like using an opener is not necessarily going to drive up velocity because it's just a, a guy pitching at the beginning of the game instead of later in the game but there are still some trends there where I was sort of surprised to see that stagnation and because a listener asked us about this when we talked about it before you don't think it's related to the rise of position player pitching right that that there's not a there aren't enough innings going to position players even now that that would be driving down or, or at least restraining the increase Oh, no. No, not a chance. Okay. All right. Okay. So I guess it's good news, maybe, for baseball that velocity does not continue to climb. But obviously, even where it is, it is leading to lots of strikeouts and lots of injuries. And by extension, extensions. So we will stop there and take a quick break. And we'll be back in just a moment with Aaron Gleeman to talk about the Twins, followed by Matt Gelb to talk about the Phillies. This week, the Baseball Prospectus Annual, Baseball Prospectus 2019, has begun to arrive in some of your mailboxes. And right now, one of the co-editors of that book, Aaron Gleeman, has arrived on the podcast. Hello, Aaron. Hello, guys. How's it going? Okay. While we're on the subject, want to give us a quick plug? I don't know if there's anyone who doesn't know what the BP Annual is or looks like at this point, but hey, it's out there and you can go get it. Yes, it is, uh, I don't know, 600 and something pages of uh, tons of baseball stats and essays and player comments and all that stuff. If you haven't, for some reason, if you're listening to this podcast and you've never read a BP Annual, uh, it's like 19 bucks. Get it. It's available yeah. where all books are sold. I'm relatively confident that if you're listening to my voice right now, uh, you'll think it's a good deal for 19 bucks. I agree. Well, I almost rescinded our invitation to you to come on this podcast because you tweeted what you think the projected opening day Twins roster will look like, and yes. it did not include Williams Astadio <laughs> <laughs> anywhere yeah. in the bench or starting lineup. I was very upset to see this, but I assume that you are just trying to project what the Twins will do, not necessarily what you think the Twins should do. We know at least that Estadio has gotten permission to enter the country and will be in Twins camp on Saturday, so we can continue to play the Twins season. We don't have to cancel the whole thing. He will <laughs> be there. But we have to get the Estadio question out of the yeah. way because we, we start every podcast by talking about Estadio, so we're certainly going to start the Twins segment about him. When will he be there? What role will he play? How much will Twins fans and all of us get to see him this season? Yeah, well, I feel the need to say I am uh, I am on the La Tortuga bandwagon. Mm -hmm. Obviously, like like many people, including you guys, I viewed him as as let's say like a person of intrigue before he was called up to the Twins, mm -hmm. and then after actually watching him in August and September, I'm fairly convinced that he's not only a major league caliber player, but 
should be in the majors. Like he's not just a borderline guy, but the issue there, like you said, when I tried to map out what their opening day roster is, they have Jason Castro making, I think eight and a half million this year. And they have Mitch Garver who spent much of last year as the primary catcher after Jason Castro got hurt. And so that leaves Estadio as the potential third catcher, which, you know, most teams, including the twins are not going to keep a third catcher. He could potentially make it in sort of a quasi-utility role, but I think most likely, because he has a minor league option left, he's going to be... Uh, the, the fans of Rochester, New York, are the ones who get to watch Williams Estadio at the beginning of the season. It's absolutely infuriating, but whatever. I guess we'll move on from that, and we'll talk to you <laughs> when he comes back up. But looking at, looking at the Twins, this this whole offseason, so much, at least for the first month or two, was there's a lot of conversation about how the Indians were going to take an intentional step back, maybe trade Corey Kluber, one of their starters, and... One of the reasons for that was because the Indians weren't being pushed. They're in a terrible division last season, a division that looked like it was not going to be very good again in 2019. And you look at the Twins this offseason, and similar to last offseason, they've been busy. They've added CJ Crown, Jonathan Scope, Nelson Cruz, Martin Perez, Blake Parker, Michael Pineda is going to be on the team this year after missing last year. Tommy John surgery. So the Twins have been busy, but their payroll is projected to be down by about $20 million. There are players out there on the market that can help. What is your level of satisfaction or dissatisfaction with the Twins offseason at this point? It's low, although whatever it was six weeks ago, whenever let's say the day they signed Nelson Cruz, I felt like that put a finishing touch on their plans for the lineup, and I liked it a lot. I thought Nelson Cruz was a great pickup. Like you said, Scope and Crone and some other moves I thought really worked well. And my assumption at that point was, okay, now they'll turn their attention to the pitching side and they still have 25, maybe even $30 million to reasonably expect them to spend. And at that same point, whether it was, I don't know, six or eight weeks ago, like you said, the everyone was kind of wondering if the Indians were going to not tear it down, but but shed some more expensive parts. And so you, you add those things together. And it was one of the few times in recent memory where I think Twins fans were like, oh, wow, are we going to see some aggressive good moves? Might they try to swoop in and take this division a year or two ahead of schedule? And then it turns out, no, not really. Martin Perez and, and Blake Parker are the only moves they've made since then. Yeah, and as you pointed out on Twitter, it's kind of ironic that the Twins just seem to have shed the amount of money that they used to be paying yeah. Joe Maurer so that Twins fans were upset and thought that Maurer's contract prevented them from making other moves, and now Maurer's contract is gone, and they just have not reapplied that money to anyone else. Yeah, it's it's odd. I mean, I've spent so much of my uh, online baseballdom trying to fight back against people who say either that Joe Maurer is overrated or overpaid or some combination. Uh, and then he's finally out of the picture. They clear $23 million. And I like like you mentioned, I tweet they're they're at 105 in terms of current payroll. And last year at opening day, I think they were at 128 and change, which uh, that's 23 million, which is exactly what Maurer makes. And I think there's a decent chance, similar to what they did last uh, spring training when they brought in like Lance Lynn and and Logan Morrison very late. I think there's a chance that they end up signing another player or maybe even two to a one year deal, uh, whoever falls into their laps, but. They're going to be, I still think, 10 or 15 uh, at the very least below last year's payroll, which, uh, yeah, it turns out Maurer might have been the only thing keeping them from having a very, very low payroll. 
I know it's always easy to spend somebody else's money and, and you know, there's always a two-way street here. But as you look at the Twins, especially after signing Martin Perez, you know, if they wanted a lefty who gets grand balls, just Dallas Keuchel on the market. You look at the bullpen, they got Blake Parker, but the Angels didn't even want Blake Parker and Craig Kimbrell's out there as a closer. Like, could, could there be two more obvious fits for this team right now if they wanted to push the Indians? Because like you said, like we've all said, they do have the money to spend, but have there been any indications that those players are even the least been interested? Not really. No, I've tr- I mean, I, not that I, I don't even really try to play the role of reporter, but you know, I've, I've tried to reach out to the few twins people who will uh, reply back to me and say basically what you were just asking, which is, is there any chance here that if Kimbrell has to settle for a three-year deal that you guys will jump in? Or if, if Keiko wants to do a short-term deal that you guys will jump in and they always basically say, well, we're not, you know, the, the phone lines are open, but I just don't think it's going to happen. I think the more frustrating part for me, because I, I, at the beginning of the offseason, I certainly wasn't projecting them to sign either of those guys. But the frustrating part to me is why not sign, I don't know, uh, Soria or Robertson or some reliever along those lines, even like a Cody Allen type. Instead, it's just been Blake Parker, who, you know, can be a decent reliever, I think. But if you look at their bullpen, needs all kinds of help. Obviously, you know, Craig Kimbrell, I think, would make tons of sense. And realistically, the money this year and the money next year would have really no impact on their ability to build long term. Because, like we just mentioned, they're 20-something million short of last year's payroll. And even after signing a couple guys to extensions uh, today, officially, uh, Polanco and, and Kepler, I think their total guaranteed money on the books for next year is like $12 million. So you could overpay Kimbrell or Keiko this year and next year and maybe even in 2021, and it really wouldn't hinder you at all. But yeah, I, I, uh, I, I'm not even, you know, I'd say there's like a 3% chance that either of those things happen, sadly. Jeff and I were just talking about some of the extensions that have recently been signed, and we kind of tabled our talk about the Twins extensions and saved it for you. So Max Kepler and Jorge Polanco have both been signed to extensions. How do you project those players over the life of those deals, and particularly Kepler, since he's been kind of regarded as a a popular breakout pick in some circles, and he doesn't seem to have priced himself as someone who's about to break out? I view them sort of similarly. I think there's more to be, I guess, uh, potentially unlocked in Kepler, just because he's a really good defensive outfielder. He draws walks. He has, I think, a pretty good approach at the plate. He can hit 25 homers. But his batting average on balls in play has just been abysmal every year. And so I think there's some tweak that they could potentially make there in terms of his swing that would unlock a whole a whole new like window of opportunity there for him to be an impact guy. Polanco, I think, is eventually just gonna wind up at second base and be a you know, an eighth place hitter who hits two seventy five with a bunch of doubles. A solid player. I think both of them have a, a high enough floor that you really can't go wrong with extensions like this. I mean, I'm sort of of the opinion that you can't go wrong on extensions like this, period, unless you just choose the worst players on your team to give them to. But the the reward is so high in terms of buying out free agency. And the really the worst case scenario is that even if both of these guys became terrible players, which I don't think they will, but even if that happens, you're out like $12 million a year. And as we just finished discussing, the Twins aren't even really maxing out their payroll, not even close anyway. So I like both of those moves. I think the next step that they should hopefully be trying to take is lock up Jose Barrios, who obviously has a lot more upside, but he's also a two-plus-a-year guy in terms of service time. It's It seems like they're not going to approach Sano or Buxton because they approached both guys last offseason 
uh, with offers, and then things have gone uh, haywire since then. I'm going to leave the Buxton question to Ben because I, I look. There's going to be a Buxton question. There's probably going to be four <laughs> Buxton questions. This could be a half hour of Buxton questions, but let's just okay. skip right on to a to an anonymous player. Last year, the Twins replaced Byron Buxton with Jake Cave, and I can just reading out loud. Jake Cave batted. He'd had a half season's worth of plate appearances. Had a 108 WRC plus. He hit for power. Is Jake Cave good? I think Jake Cave is a pretty good hitter and can be a really nice hitter if platooned. I think the big question with him is he's not a center fielder. I think he's pretty brutal in center field. And he might not really even be a plus in the corners, which, you know, you have Buxton in center, you have Kepler in right, you have Eddie Rosario in left. I think Cave's probably, if things go according to plan, going to get 250 at-bats, something like that this year, maybe 300. He's a nice player, like a I think a borderline starter, but I think he's also... I think he's 26 years old, and he was cut loose by the Yankees off their 40-man roster because they had a numbers crunch, and the Twins uh, swooped in and grabbed him. So I think he's like a good pickup and a useful player. I just think the odds are he's going to come back down to earth a little bit. Here's the Buxton question, or maybe we'll make it a, a combination buxton no question, and you can just talk for 10 minutes. So I saw that you tweeted the year-by-year progression of yeah. the number one same-age comparable players for Buxton and Sano, according to Pakoda. And Buxton's comps over the past several years have included Robin Yount, Mike Trout, Christian Yelich. Sano's comps have included Justin Upton, Giancarlo Stanton, Chris Bryant, and their 2019 comps are... Austin Jackson for Byron Buxton, and Mark Reynolds for Miguel Sano. They have come down in the world, according to Pakoda. So what should we expect out of both of these guys at this point? It's looked like they would both be stars. It's looked like they would both be nothing. Where are we going to end up with them, either this year or in the future? I mean, that is a very sad progression. It (laughs) It made me sad typing it out. But what makes it even sadder, I think, is there's not that much of me that really disagrees with where they stand now. I think the Mark Reynolds comp in particular for Sano, which I think he's had the last two years, is seems kind of fitting to me in that he's a guy who came up and showed a bunch of power, but then the flaws were exposed. And he's been a decent player. I mean, he's had some 30 homer seasons, uh, but he's not really a good third baseman. So he's more of a first baseman and he's probably going to hit 230 more often than he hits 270. And you start, and because he strikes out so much, and you start to talk about it, and you go, well, that's kind of where Sano is. I still think Sano has more upside than that, certainly. But if Sano settles in as like a 250 hitter with some walks and some power, and he's really more of a first baseman than a third baseman, that's not really the type of guy, particularly in, you know, at this point in, in team building and in, I don't know, power hitting as an era that you really want to build around, which makes me think that there's more reason to have faith in Buxton still turning out to be an impact guy, but I say that as someone who says that every year. I feel like I've said that 30 years in a row, even though Buxton's only like 25, uh, and there's only really been like three months during that time where I've, I've been right, and during those three months, I just constantly brag about how right I am, uh, that Buxton's breaking out, and then he gets hurt or he goes back to being a terrible hitter, but the, the thing that Buxton can fall back on is if he's healthy, he's a great center fielder, and he's probably one of the two best base runners in all of baseball. So even if he hits like 240 with 15 homers, uh, I think he's an all-star caliber guy. So I've it's gone back and forth because, I mean, Sano was an all-star basically a year ago before he, he had a significant leg injury. But I have more faith now in Buxton. Uh, but that should be taken with large grains of salt because I am a uh, 
I'm a renowned Buxton Bobo here locally. So during the 2011-2012 offseason, uh, Derek Falvey was uh, the Indians' co-director of baseball operations, along with David Stearns, who is, of course, now in charge of the Brewers. 2016, Falvey was promoted to assistant GM. And then in October of 2016, Derek Falvey was hired to run the Twins for the most part. So he had he's, – he's now completed his third offseason run of the Twins. He's had two regular seasons under the belt. So by this point, whatever Derek Falvey's preferences are should have been implemented. He should have the organization that he was hoping to build. So in your estimation, you've had a little over two years of the Derek Falvey-run Minnesota Twins. What is your evaluation of the team's front office? I think they have Falvey and also Thad Levine, have, who was brought in from Texas at the same time to be the GM – They've built the organization they want. They've brought in, whether it's coaching, whether it's player development, whether it's research and development, analytics guys, they've spent a ton of additional resources compared to the previous regime, who basically spent none on the R&D side. Uh, and they've brought in a lot of people who I think are incredibly smart uh, from some of our favorite websites and from some of our favorite front offices and that and, and in talking to those people, you can't help but be impressed and be optimistic about the things they're doing behind the scenes. Now, with that said, they just haven't done much in terms of on-field stuff or acquisitions, except for maybe the Nelson Cruz signing. They've been, you know, trading away some people. They've been making, you know, budget signings, uh, which is sort of that was the, has been the Twins' MO for like 50 years. So I'm very confident that this front office knows what it's doing and is moving in the correct direction and has done, particularly behind the scenes, a lot of things that the average fan may not care about but will ultimately like the results uh, from. But, you know, you still have to put a good team on the field. And I do feel like they have taken a similar stance to the previous regime and that it's, well, we don't need to spend now because we're waiting and we're waiting and we're waiting. And at some point, uh, you know, I think fans just get kind of sick of that. I think it was a little embarrassing for the Twins at the deadline last year when they traded Ryan Presley to the Astros. And Presley went on to be one of the best relievers in baseball in the second half because the Astros sat him down and made some recommendations about ways he could change his approach. And he did. And suddenly he reached a, a whole new level. Not that he had been bad for the Twins. So that seemed like an indication that the Twins had some breakdown of communication somewhere along the way from the front office to the field, and they took steps to rectify that this offseason. Can you give us some insight into the Twins' managerial makeover and their coaching staff turnover? I think that's 100% right, what you said. is Everyone you know, respects Paul Molitor. I mean, he is truly a legend in Minnesota and Milwaukee too, I guess, but and Toronto. But the the problem that I think people found were a the sort of day to day relationships weren't there with Molitor, who's like almost seventy years old, and some of the you know twenty five year old players. But the bigger thing was what you just mentioned with Ryan Presley, and there were some other examples where they felt like while Molitor was somewhat open to you know, let's call it the new school approach, he wasn't really a effective middleman in terms of getting that information into the hands and the minds of players. And so they've replaced him with Rocco Baldelli, who by all accounts seems to be uh, potentially one of the more effective people you could ever find at that. And then on the, particularly on the pitching side, they hired Wes Johnson from the college ranks to be their, their new pitching coach. And 
Uh, I'm reading some of the, the quotes early in camp from, I think, Blake Parker had one, and there's a couple other uh, pitchers who have been, talked about working with him. He's, you know, he's breaking out all the tech he can possibly find, uh, and the, the early quotes are all basically, I have no idea what he was talking about, but he made it make sense to me, and now I'm tweaking this and I'm tweaking that. And I think that's one of the, the bigger reasons for optimism for 2019 and also beyond, obviously, is that they can start to get more out of the talent they have on hand, I think, particularly on the pitching side. Looking at the pitching side, I don't know if there are many more intriguing young pitchers in Major League Baseball than Jose Brios. He's, I think it's probably fairly common knowledge now that there's the, some pretty flattering pitch comps to the late Jose Fernandez in, in the pitches that he's able to throw. But looking at 2017 to 2018, Barrios didn't seem to take a, a huge step forward. Uh, he's he's still clearly very good. He gets a lot of strikeouts, limits his walks. But is in in your mind, how close is Jose Barrios right now to being a finished product? And and what do you think that finished product would look like? I think he right now is probably I don't know number two starter. I think what you said is right that he he's really good, but he hasn't quite taken that jump to great yet. And I think part of it is if you look back not only last year but the year before he really kind of fell apart down the stretch. And I wonder, you know, he's he's a small pitcher. He's a slight pitcher, although he's in great shape. I think that was one of the issues from the moment they drafted him was how much in terms of workload can this guy handle. And I think there's some concern that he doesn't break down physically, but that he just loses a little bit of effectiveness and starts to give up homers, can't last as long in, in starts. I think there's also, uh, in terms of pitch mix and the way he approaches things, I think the Twins... I don't know if they've said this on the record, but I know they, they feel like there's a couple small tweaks they can make to try to unlock a little more potential uh, just by having him focus on the things he does well and, and kind of ditch the pitches or at least the situations where he uses those pitches that isn't effective. And I realize every pitching coach, every team is trying to do that. But I think there's I'm, – I'm relatively optimistic about Barrios. I mean, I think he's he's a super hard worker. The, the talent, just like from a, a pure arm – talent standpoint is is for sure number one starter caliber so he's uh he's a huge key because if he doesn't take a step forward the rest of their rotation and really the whole pitching staff is is pretty underwhelming yeah well after years and years of decades of constructing their pitching staff out of brad radke clones who were not mostly as good as brad radke the Twins finally got out of the strikeout rate basement last year. They weren't one of the best strikeout teams in baseball, but for the first time in a while, they weren't one of the worst. And Brios was part of that. So was the return of Trevor May, who's now a pitcher again, in addition to a Twitch streamer. <laughs> Is there anyone else on the way who could send that strikeout rate soaring even higher? How high can it go? Who else was responsible for that change? Taylor Rogers is a guy who took a huge step forward last year, and they're counting on him to basically be their primary setup man, I think. He was a former like fifth starter type throughout the minors, left-hander who got knocked around by righties all the time, and then became kind of a mediocre middle reliever. And then all of a sudden, last year, turned his breaking ball into a weapon and was, was just phenomenal, especially down the stretch. The one guy that I would really point to as having the potential to be an impact arm along with Barrios is Fernando Romero, who's been a top 100 prospect for a while now. But the the question they have with him now is, it's he's been a starter throughout his career, and he had five good starts with the Twins last year, and then you know six or seven bad ones. And it sounds like they're all but settled on him. If he begins the season in the majors, it'll be as a reliever. Uh, so what I'm curious about there is, will it be a traditional relief role, or will it be a multi-inning, two, three times a week role, where they can maybe get him to 90 or 100 innings anyway, in which case my usual uh, 
protest against moving young starters to permanent relief roles won't be as strong because as long as you can get more than 65 innings out of them and there may be higher leverage, uh, that's fine with me. But yeah, I think he's he's an example of a guy who could be an impact arm. Uh, Pineda, who you mentioned earlier, I mean, if he's anything like he was pre-injury, would be really good, although I feel like pre-injury is sort of a constant state uh, for Pineda. But other than that, I'm not super enthused about their their bullpen options, which goes to what I was saying earlier about I just don't I I'm confused about why spending eight million or ten million uh, on a, a proven good quality veteran setup man wasn't really in in the cards. You uh, you took my Taylor Rogers question before I could ever ask it, and I guess I can't really move on to a Trevor Hildenberger question because that would have been more relevant a year ago. So as you. As you look at the Twins now, this is a roster that's clearly, even just with, with Barrios and Buxton and Kepler alone, there's there's a lot of upside that's on this roster right now. But do you think, and also, that's a two-part question, your degree of confidence, is this organization moving in in the right direction? Is this team on the upswing? And uh, and if you believe that it is, because there is help coming through the minor leagues, they have some of the, couple of the, the best prospects in baseball at this point, at least according to Fangraphs, but how... Long do you think it would be until you go into a season and you think, you know, the Twins are at least as good as the Indians are, and we are ready to actually contend for the division title? Okay, that was like a thousand points question, but I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna answer those in whatever order I choose. But I'm guilty of doing that too, so I don't I don't blame that. Okay, so I think they're moving in the right direction. I think the frustrating thing is that this year they're just sort of content to tread water, but at the same time, as you mentioned, treading water might still be a pretty decent team. In terms of when they can, you know, realistically overtake the Indians, I think a lot of that has to do with the Indians. But I would say there's a decent chance that this time next year, if you guys uh, have me back on to chat about the Twins, we're at least talking about more of a neck and neck race uh, at the top of the Central. Yeah, like you meant. I mean, they have Royce Lewis and Alex Kirloff and uh, Gratterall. They have quite a few high upside prospects, but I think they're probably one or two years away, at least from establishing themselves. This year, the Twins keep saying this is all about we need to find out if Buxton and Sano are still worth building around. They need to find out if if Barrios can be a true frontline number one starter. But yeah, I mean, I think this part of what's difficult in terms of the local narrative here, uh, which I am way too immersed in, is all the frustration that we talked about with not adding to the pitching staff and not spending competitively is separate from the fact that, well, they're still a pretty decent team. I think Pakoda has them at 81 wins. I think Fangraphs has them at like 82 or 83 wins. I could absolutely see an 85-plus win team coming out of this roster at this point, but I would argue that makes it even more frustrating that they didn't spend another 15, 20 million to try to make it an 88 win or a, or a 90 win team. Yeah, of course, by the time we're talking about whether the Twins are better than the Indians or as good, then we may also be talking about whether the White Sox can endure that true. discussion. So that's a, a problem from the Twins' perspective, too. So you know the drill. We always end with the win total prediction, and you sort of anticipated it there. You said you could see 85 or more wins, but how many do you expect to? Okay, I'm gonna say, uh, boy, I'm gonna say 84 wins. How about that? That sounds okay. good. Sure. All right. And do you think that this core, the the current kind of Kepler, Buxton, Sano group of players, will make the playoffs again, or do you think it's going to take until the next wave, the Lewises and Gratterall and Kirillovs come along? I think it will take to the next wave, but I think the I don't think it will have to. I don't think we'll have to wait 
as long as it will take for Lewis and Kirloff to be the best players on the team for them to make the playoffs. But I do think uh, they will need their help to make the playoffs. I think it'll be, uh, you know, Buxton, obviously Kepler and Polanco are going to be around for a while. I think Sano is the one that uh, is less likely to be around long term. You add in Lewis and Kirloff maybe in their second year, let's say. And then I think that that's a lot closer to a consistent contender. I don't think mm-hmm. you said Astadio in there at all. <laughs> that's true. I mean, that's here's the thing. We joke about him, but our projections have him as like one of the 10 best hitting catchers in baseball. I suspect that Zimborski's uh, Zips projections are the same. Like, I'm pretty convinced that he's not a butcher defensively. And so part of me like wants to joke about him because he's such a just a fun personality. But part of me also wants to say, like, if you give him 100 starts at catcher, I'm pretty sure he's going to push you towards the playoffs. And that, I don't know, it's, I feel like I'm, you know, on crazy pills when I say that, but I'm starting to believe that more and more. No, I heard, I heard from a team person, not a twins team person either, not too long ago. I just, I asked, like, hey, so what do you think about Estadio? And he was like, oh, well, you know, he's at least a top 30 catcher in Major League Baseball. Dude should be starting. So anyway, long story short, he should just go to Colorado. (laughs) Give us one more prediction then. What day does Astadio play his first game for the 2019 Twins? Ooh, that's a good one. I will say uh, May 3rd, and I'll say he ends up with more than 200 plate appearances for the Twins. Okay. Where will he play the most games? Catcher, but also a little bit of DH, I think, will maybe a little bit of first base. I mean, he started a game in center field for them last year <laughs> and he started multiple games at third base and second base. So I, I don't even know, like, I feel like we've talked ourselves into like the story and then all of a sudden the story happened and now I'm not even sure like how to react to it. So yeah, I'm, uh, and now after this conversation, I'm fully on board. Let's maybe I'll go pick it outside of target field. I want him as the opening day starter. Let him play all nine positions on opening day. Listen to the grassroots people. Yeah. <laughs> Aaron Gleeman, the voice of the Twins fans. All right, so that concludes our Twins slash Astadio preview podcast. You can find Aaron writing at Baseball Prospectus and in the annual, which he also co-edited. You can hear him on Gleeman and Geek and KFAN. You can find him on Twitter at Aaron Gleeman. Thank you, as always, Aaron. Thank you, guys. See you. All right, so we will take another quick break, and we'll be right back with Matt Gelb of The Athletic to talk about the Phillies. Alright, so we are back and we are joined now by the Phillies beat writer for The Athletic, Matt Gelb. Hey Matt. Hey guys, thanks for having me. So I guess we should just get the inevitable out of the way here. I think with most teams in most winters, you might look at what the Phillies have done and say, hey, they've been active and they've made a lot of moves. They signed Andrew McCutcheon, they traded for JT Realmuto, they signed David Robertson, they just extended Aaron Nola. Good job, Phillies. But no one really seems to be saying that right now because we're all waiting for the Harper or Machado move or the Harper and Machado moves. So why hasn't it happened yet? What are the odds that it will happen? If it doesn't happen, will John Middleton be burned in effigy? Well, you even left out the Gene Segura trade. I mean, they they, they have had, I think, <laughs> right. a great offseason. And, and, and that's not, you can say two things, that they've had a great offseason and that 
it's not complete yet. And that's because the market has really, I think, shaped up in their favor. So what's going to happen? I, I don't know. And, and anyone who tells you they know is, is lying right now. I think this, like, why has it taken so long? The players want to sign on their terms and the teams want to sign the deal on their terms. I mean, that's kind of as simple as that. I mean, and it's not to, you know, diminish like all the work that goes into negotiations and, and figure out, you know, where the best fit is. But I think that's where we're at right now. I think it's just kind of a stare, staring contest between, you know, all of these sides. And I, I think the Phillies view themselves as being in a, in a, in a position of strength right now and that, you know, whatever offers they've made, they're, they're just going to kind of stick with it and, and hope that somebody blinks. And on the player's side, they're hoping that try to get more teams involved and hope that maybe the Phillies or another team blinks too. So I think that they will sign one of these guys. I don't know which one it's going to be. I don't know when it's going to be. I think it'll be before opening day, but I don't know, maybe not. <laughs> um, I do think they're going to land one of these guys. I mean, they, the way the market has shaped up, you know, a year ago, we would have never, we just would have never predicted the market would have gone this way. And I think the Phillies, you know, could, could stand to benefit from, from how it all went down. And, and I think either Harper or Machado will be on this team and they would cap what would be, you know, a really momentous offseason for them. I mean, they have gotten substantially better, in my opinion. Yeah. Do you think one of the two makes more sense or would improve them more just from a, a talent or positional perspective? And and if they don't land one of them for whatever reason, do you think Phillies fans will revolt or will they be able to look at all the other moves and say, hey, we got better this winter even without one of those guys? I think Phillies fans would revolt. And, and you know, why? I mean, you know, it's because you know, the expectations were raised pretty high. I mean, it goes beyond the words that John Middleton said. I mean, you know, the Phillies have been looking at this offseason for a long time. I mean, it was, you know, Manny Machado and Bryce Harper just didn't become free agents out of nowhere. I mean, they had targeted this offseason as a time to really start flexing their financial might. And, and, and they have. I mean, look, they spent, I think, the second most free agent dollars last offseason. I think they're in the, you know, they're in the top five, maybe top three this offseason, even before a possible you know, high money signing in one of those guys. So they have flexed their financial might. I think, you know, given the way last year ended and the way, you know, the expectations were this off season and the fact that the market, that they're competing for all we know against teams like the Padres and the White Sox for these players. I mean, yeah, I think people would be upset if they didn't sign one of them. Is that fair to the Phillies who, you know, have had a really good off season? I, I don't know. I mean, I think they should sign one of them. I mean, they have the, the payroll to do it. They have the, you know, they have the roster flexibility to do it. And I think that, to me, more than anything, is what is impressive about their offseason. They made all these moves, these signings, these trades, and not once did they compromise really, you know, their flexibility. I mean, they are sitting here after making all those moves that we talked about, and still Bryce Harper and Manny Machado fit somewhere on the roster. Who's the better fit? I think just positionally, because he. You know, at third base, he'd be an elite defender and elite offensive player. You know, Manny Machado is probably the best baseball fit. Is he the best fit, period, for the franchise, the city? I, I don't know. I mean, people are constantly debating, you know, his, his hustle, his attitude. And uh, it's not for me to, to jump into that. I don't know what kind of teammate he is. By all accounts, he's a terrific teammate. I don't know how Manny Machado or Bryce Harper would respond after getting a a major contract. They, these are things that they are considering. And when you're talking about a contract of this size and, and, and this kind of dollar value, you know, sometimes more than baseball things factor into it. And that's, that's part of it. I mean, those extra variables, you know, could influence their decision, but look, 
Machado might be a better positional fit, but Bryce Harper fits too. I mean, they, they have an outfield spot that, that's held down right now by Nick Williams, who has had a, you know, a decent start to his major league career, but he could, you know, they could easily upgrade there. And then they would roll with Andrew McCutcheon and Odubel Herrera slash Roman Quinn and, and possibly Bryce Harper. So there, there's, there's a fit for both of these guys on the roster. I guess we're just going to talk about these two for the entire segment that we're doing here. But, you know, now now that players have reported to camp, you're you're down there. It's one thing you try to as a team, you try to get moves done during the earlier part of the offseason so that you don't end up in this position where I think everybody on the team knows that the Phillies are in pursuit of Manny Machado or Bryce Harper. But at the same time, now everybody's together and you've got Michael Franco, Scott Kingery out there playing to win third base. You've got Odubel Herrera, Nick Williams, Roman Quinn trying to win two spots in the outfield. I know maybe this is sort of a soft subjective question, but what is the mood now with players in camp trying to win jobs when at least a certain segment of them know that if the Phillies get their way, those players aren't going to have jobs in front of them anymore? Yeah, I mean, it's weird. I mean, there's no way around it. It's a weird dynamic. And the players are well aware of this whole thing. Like, they know that they could wake up one day and that their their bosses have, have hired a replacement for them. So it's 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 weird. I mean, this usually happens before everyone gets to camp and it's, you know, you can make it a much less personal transaction. I mean, you, you know, the, these transactions are hard for teams because you're, 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 you're trading away people or you're replacing people. It's harder when you're going to have, might have to do it face to face here in, in, in spring training. So it's a, it's a weird dynamic. You know, I mean, like everyone is saying, well, we're, you know, we're going off the assumption that we, you know, our roster is here. We have our full roster, but you know, nobody truly believes that. I mean, everybody knows that that a replacement could come into camp any day. And, you know, I've, I've heard scouts and I've heard people say in the baseball before, well, in spring, you're playing for, for 29 other teams too. There's always somebody watching and that, you know, even if you're on the edge of a roster that just because you don't think you might make this roster doesn't mean you won't make another roster. And that can serve as motivation for guys, but I, I don't know if, if that's enough motivation. So to talk about something other than Harper or Machado, earlier this week we did the Diamondbacks preview and we talked about the late season collapse and what it meant, if anything, and the Phillies, of course, ended their season in a very similar fashion. So what was perceived to be the culprit for how they finished? Was it just a a lack of strength on the roster that got exposed? Was it guys getting worn down? Was it a failure of leadership? And did any of the analysis of how that happened impact how they went into this winter? Yeah, I I think if I were to put the blame on one thing, it was that just, you know, the roster was kind of held together, you know, with, 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 with rubber bands for most of the season. I mean, the pitching, the starting pitching, you know, was remarkable for the first three, four months of the season. And, and they were doing it despite just horrific defense behind them and an inconsistent lineup supporting them. And the defense never got better. The lineup never got consistent. And the starting pitching really just wilted in, in August and September. And everyone outside of Aaron Nola, you know, just had, had a rough, a rough finish to the season. And, you know, it was too much to expect the starting rotation to simply carry this team all the way. And, and it almost did. I mean, that's kind of the amazing thing. They won 80 games. They had a 14 win improvement, you know, despite, uh, you know, depending on what defensive metrics, even if you just use your eyes, you know, one of, one of the just worst defenses we've seen in the last decade and, and an inconsistent lineup. It's amazing to me that they won 80 games last year. It really is. And so, you know, in their post mortem of all this, I think they looked at um, the defenses somewhere they need to improve. And I, and I think they have improved. They're going to, they got Reese Hoskins back to first base. They added Andrew McCutcheon, who is obviously not a center fielder anymore, but, you know, should be good in a corner spot, especially a corner spot at Citizens Bank Park. They picked up Gene Segura, who is not 
a superstar defender, but he is at least average to above average, and that will be an upgrade over as Drupal Cabrera and Scott Kingery at shortstop, which is really what they used for most of last season. So they, they have gotten better defensively. They picked up Real Muto, you know, who, who Alfaro showed terrific games defensively last year, but now you, you brought in a guy who uh, is the best, you know, one of the best catchers in baseball and, and a terrific defender. So they prioritize the defense, and that's why there were questions about not upgrading the starting rotation. They, they believe that a defensive upgrade is almost an upgrade to the rotation right now, and, and we'll see if that logic holds. Uh, I suspect that come July, you know, they could be on the trade market looking for, for some rotation help, but we'll see. So let's talk about that Real Moto trade forward for a few minutes here because they did pick up uh, the guy who seems to be the best catcher in baseball at this point. I uh, when I when I wrote about Real Moto uh, and the case for him being the best catcher in baseball, I realized after I wrote it, like, oh, I think people already know this. Actually, people recognize that he is a he's blossomed into an excellent all around catcher. And it, there was an interesting divergence. I think that when you looked at how the trade was received publicly, of course, whoever wins a, a trade sweepstakes, just like whoever wins a free agent sweepstakes, will be the the high bidder. And publicly, there was a lot written about how the Marlins did a great job and, and the Phillies gave up too much. But then there was also a lot written, citing industry sources, saying that at least around the game, uh, a lot of a lot of front offices and executives were impressed that the Phillies were able to get Real Muto for as little as they gave up. So, where where do you think the the difference in opinion is is coming from, and how do you evaluate giving up Alfaro and and Sanchez and Stewart, given uh, some of the price tags that were talked about earlier in the offseason? So it's a, it's a I think it's a fascinating trade, and the cop out is to say that both teams did really well, and I, and I think both teams did. I mean, both teams are in different cycles right now. The Marlins are, are, are in a rebuilding cycle. The Phillies are no longer in a rebuilding cycle. They, they have different priorities, and this trade filled both those priorities. I, I look at this trade, uh, it's a, I think it's a really interesting one because I describe this trade uh, as being risky, but that doesn't, mean, that doesn't mean it's a negative thing. I mean, the risk that the Phillies got back is minimal. I mean, JT Romuto, at his very worst, will be one of the best catchers in baseball for the next two years at least. I mean, I think they hope to extend him eventually. Uh, but, you know, the risk there is pretty minimal, barring an injury. And he has stayed relatively healthy. He has been productive when on the field. The bar for a above-average catcher is lower than ever right now in Major League Baseball. So I think there is no risk there. But the risk that they gave up is significant. And, and the chances, though, that both Alfaro and Sixto Sanchez fulfill their potential is is limited. I, I understand that completely. Like, I, I think I, I'm a big Jorge Alfaro guy. I think he's going to be a really solid catcher in the major leagues for a long time, but his profile is out of high risk. He does not put the ball in play. He has shown defensive improvements, but still struggles in some basic areas. Sixto Sanchez, if he fulfills his potential, he's a top of the rotation pitcher. You know, one of the, maybe one of the better pitching prospects in baseball, but there are questions about his health. There are questions about his secondary stuff. There are questions about, you know, durability and whether he's even a starting pitcher, you know, in a few years. So, it is a risky trade. I described it, I mean, I described it for lack of a better term, I described it as ballsy. And ballsy doesn't necessarily mean a negative thing. I mean, I think when you're in a position that Matt Quintech was in, it was time to cash in on a few things. And if you're going to cash in uh, your top pitching prospect and a, and a DC catcher, you want to get the very best. And, and, and I do think they graded JT Real Muto so much better than any other catcher in baseball that, that that's why they viewed this as, as a trade that they, that they had to make. Gabe Kapler is always going to be a lightning rod, and he has obviously come up for a lot of criticism this offseason because of his actions or inactions a few years ago as the Dodgers player development director. 
Do you have any sense of whether the Phillies are at all concerned about his actions there and his defense of those actions? And even apart from that, how would you say he held up in his first year as manager after being kind of a a controversial choice and initially rubbing fans the wrong way or having some embarrassing in-game instances, but seemingly settling down as the season went on? I don't know if the podcast is long enough to talk about all of the, <laughs> Gabe's first year. I mean, he, he is a complicated figure. He is a complex figure. He is fascinating. And, and with, with regards to the first part of the question, my understanding is that the, the Phillies have, have no concerns. I mean, they, they went through a pretty rigorous vetting process, from what I understand, through Major League Baseball, through the Dodgers, before hiring Kapler, and, 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 and these issues had come up. You know, they were not aware that of, of sexual assault allegations. You know, there were documents that showed that that no one of the daughters was until a week or two after the incident. It, it's it's a it's complicated. You know, I, I think there's there are certain credibility issues that are at play. You know, Gabe has to. You know, there are people who are who are who are questioning Gabe, and he has to restore his credibility. And I'm not sure how one goes about that because you know there 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 should be and there are questions about how he handled these incidents and i also think that he you know he he will he will have these credibility issues for as long as he's philly's manager i mean he is a polarizing guy and people have good reasons you know to wonder about you know some of the things he does or did in the past and that's just that's just always going to be the case i mean i think the phillies you know they may have properly vetted him and everything but you know they knew they had to have known what they were getting into here when they hired him. I mean, he is, uh, he is a lightning rod and, and, and it will only increase this year because, you know, the expectations have, have raised here. I mean, if, if they get out to a slow start, uh, you know, with this, with this roster, this improved roster, I mean, there will be a lot of angry people in Philadelphia and the first person they're going to point to will be Gabe Kapler. I mean, I can already predict this and it's a very simple thing. He, he, is on the hot seat. And that's crazy to say for a manager who was going into his second year and, and inherited a team that had won uh, 66 games and improved them to 80 games last year, but he will be on the hot seat because he is who he is. And I'll say this about his season last year. He showed an ability to adapt. I mean, the beginning of the season couldn't have gone any worse for a manager. I mean, he, he had already, the honeymoon was over before he stepped foot on his home field in Philadelphia. I mean, after that first three-game series in Atlanta, I mean, people were just, and rightfully so. I mean, he had, he made some, some horrible moves and, and brought in a pitcher who hadn't even warmed up yet into the second game of the season. I mean, it was just unbelievable. He showed an ability to adapt though. And I think he's shown some ability to adapt even this spring too. I mean, there will be some culture changes. I think there will be a, a few more rules than there were last year around the clubhouse. And he is a smart guy I, that anyone who, who criticizes him or who likes him, I think can agree on that. He is a very smart guy. Uh, he has different ideas, but he, he is willing to adapt. And, and I think that's going to be tested very quickly in this, in this 2019 season. I mean, they, they, they have to get off to a good start. I mean, there will be, there will be a lot of calls for his job if they don't and, and fair or not. That's just, that's just what they got into here. I, I think everybody knows that. I know it was fascinating a year ago in spring when we saw the, the Phillies. And Gabe Kapler experimenting with like moving Reese Hoskins from left field to right field, depending on who was at the plate. And before the season actually got started, there was a lot of excitement around what Kapler might be able to do and how the Phillies would implement different strategies. And at the same time, in the same spring training, there was a lot of excitement around Scott Kingery. I remember seeing a uh, prominent national 
Baseball reporter referring to Scott Kingery as seemingly being the best young player in any spring training camp or something along those lines, implying, you know, better than Ronald Acuna, better than Juan Soto, better than whoever you want to say. And I'm not going to go into detail. There's a lot of numbers I could read, but instead I'll just use one adjective. Uh, Bad. Scott Kingery's rookie season was bad. He signed a long-term contract and then he played. He was moved to shortstop and he was bad. There was not seemingly a whole lot of progress, at least statistically so. Moving forward, Kingery is entering his age 25 season. He's got a good track record. He was a good player in the minors. Obviously, all of that excitement that was there last spring can't have been completely uh, destroyed or deteriorated. So moving forward, I understand, of course, if Manny Machado signs, then Kingery has to kind of move around and maybe a path to playing time isn't so obvious. But how is Scott Kingery's stock looking now relative to one year ago? Not as good. I mean, you're right. I mean, it was bad. I mean, he was just underwater from the very start of the season, and he never he never got above water. I mean, he really, you know, he, he pointed out a couple of days ago just how like he was looking at, you know, it's amazing how many how often he was behind the count. I mean, oh one, oh two. I think he had the highest percentage of 0-2 counts of any hitter, qualified hitter in baseball, or any hitter with at least 400 plate appearances. He was constantly behind the count. And pitchers began to exploit him because they knew that he was taking the first pitch a lot. And he started to get into his own head. Where is the stock right now? I, I think it's, it's still decent. It's not as good as it was last year. And those, those comments about him looking like one of the best young players in, in spring, I mean, he was. He was unbelievable last spring. And he's been unbelievable for the last two springs. I mean, he, he really caught a lot of eyes two springs ago when, you know, when he was in his first big league camp. And, I, you know, look, I think his path to playing time, even if they don't sign someone like Manny Machado, will be to play all over the field. I still think they can find ways to get him in the lineup maybe three, four times a week. And if he does produce more than that per week. But look, you know, there were a lot of criticism last year, too, when he signed that contract. There were other agencies saying, how, you know, how could he sign the deal? I think right now, you know, I think they still project him as to be an everyday regular at some point. It probably needs to be at second base at some point. Cesar Hernandez is a second baseman and had, you know, sort of an up and down year, but has a decent track record the last few years. So Hernandez is the guy there for now. Kingery is going to be on the team. He's going to have to play a lot of positions and, and he's bulked up a little bit, but you know, he just has to have a, a better, I think, mental approach at the plate. He, he was just behind in every count. And for a young hitter, for any hitter, that's impossible. For a young hitter, it's just, it's hell. And he really did go through that last year. In addition to all the player transactions we've mentioned, the Phillies have been very active this offseason in hiring staff, hiring coaches. They've picked up unconventional hitting coaches and people from the Astros and sports science people. Can you shed any light on how they've tried to reinvent their player development and their coaching staff and sort of their information transfer process this winter? Well, actually, I just ran into Rob Segadin and Ed Lucas, who two former players. Segadin, who was playing uh, last year in the minor leagues from the Dodgers system, they are now hired on the Phillies staff. They are minor league player information coordinators, sort of kind of a, a clunky title, but they're data coaches in the minors. I mean, that, that they, they started to do some of that last year. Sam Fold was the guy in the majors who was sort of a data coach, and they hired another employee named Ben Worthen from the Orioles. He was a minor league data coach, and now they've added more data coaches. And they've tried to take a progressive approach, I think, to player development, and they're not the only team that's done that this offseason. Their most interesting hire, no doubt, was a guy named Jason Ochart, who came from Driveline, and he is the minor league hitting coordinator. He run, He is now in charge of the minor league hitting program. They are totally revamping that, and it will come with a very database approach. I mean, Ochart 
you know, built the hitting program at driveline from the ground up. There were a lot of people who were interested in hiring him in Major League Baseball. There were a lot of people who were trying to copy what Ochert did in driveline, and the Phillies hired him. And uh, it's going to be really interesting to watch how they approach their hitting program because, you know, their position player development hasn't been stellar. Uh, I think their pitching program is far ahead of their hitting program in the minor league side. Rafael Chavez has headed up that pitching program the last few years, and he's done some really good work with, especially with some undersized, small bonus guys uh, in, in, in the low minors. So they're, they're taking a very data-driven approach to everything. That's obvious on the major league side with, with what Kapler has implemented. You know, even the decision they made at pitching coach, you know, Rick Kranitz had been here for a few years. He was, you know, a respected guy. He's a very old school baseball guy. And the Phillies let him go only because that other teams wanted to hire the assistant pitching coach, Chris Young, you know, who, who was an advanced scout, uh, for the Astros during their championship year and years before that and was the assistant pitching coach last year. And he's a very, uh, data driven guy. And, and, and they like what Chris Young does and other teams liked it too. So, they liked it enough to promote him to pitching coach and you know, fire Rick Kranitz, who had done a good job here. The pitching was their strength last year. So it's very unusual to see, you know, a change in pitching coach after the kind of year they had pitching wise. But, you know, they're, they're all in on, on, on database development, uh, on, on, on database decisions at the major league level. They've probably made more hires in the last two, three years than they did in, in the previous decade combined. I mean, it's been that, it's been that swift of a change. One of the young pitchers who did emerge out of that pitcher development system last year came up and made an immediate splash, of course, was Sir Anthony Dominguez, just reflecting on his numbers here. When he came up in May, in case anyone's forgotten, in May he threw 13 and two-thirds innings. He allowed zero runs, he had zero walks, and he struck out 15 batters. He also allowed just two hits. He was very good. And so during the first half of the season, Sir Anthony Dominguez was fantastic, made an immediate splash, moved to, uh, to the closer role, and then he, he kind of struggled a little bit down the stretch, lost his, I guess you could say, release point, his walks skyrocketed. And I was wondering, it's easy to look at the numbers and say, okay, well, moving forward, the real Sir Anthony Dominguez is going to be somewhere in the middle of his first and second half, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But when you look at Sir Anthony Dominguez, you saw him up close and personal, saw a lot of his pitching last year. What do you see moving forward? And it's it's real easy to look at Sir Anthony Dominguez and say, well, here's a candidate to be the next Edwin Diaz. But what what caused his his second half to be so much worse than than his first? And do you think that he has or is in the process of making the changes that are necessary for him to get back to pitching at his best? You know, Jeff, I think it boiled down to this. This was last year was his first full year as a reliever. You know, he had never pitched above high A coming into the 2018 season. He had been in the, the high Clearwater rotation in the Florida State League. Uh, in 2017, that's where he ended. They had to add him to the 40-man roster because he was a Rule 5 guy. Always had an electric arm. They made him a reliever last spring, and he was so good at AA and then AAA, they had to bring him up. And I just think the workload caught up to him. He just was not used to uh, the kind of back-to-back work, the kind of two games and three days work through a full season, and, and it showed. I mean, in, in August and September, he was really uh, – he was feeling it. I mean, I, I think – he just, he learned a lot about his body. I think he learned a lot about what it's like to be a reliever in the majors, what it's like to be a reliever, period, which is something he hadn't done before that. And it is, it is hard. I mean, it's a hard transition. It's a different kind of uh, mentality and a different kind of training program. He was when he, <laughs> the natural cut that comes on his fastball is, is a God-given gift. I mean, there's just no other way to say it. And, and as long as he can throw that pitch, he's got a great shot. He has an incredible arsenal. And I think, 
you know, with a little more knowledge about his role and a little more understanding about how a full major league season in a bullpen is, you know, you could see that guy that you saw when he first came up. You mentioned that the Phillies hope that the rotation will improve just because the defense will improve. And we know how good Nola is. We know who Arietta is, although we just recently learned that he was dealing with a knee issue last season and had surgery to correct it. So perhaps there's some improvement there. But you look at the lesser known players in that rotation, Nick Pavetta, Vince Velasquez, Zach Eflin. All those guys had giant gaps between their ERAs and their FIPS last year, which you can certainly attribute to the defense, at least in part. So which of those guys, if there's one who stands out, seems poised to make the the largest improvement or to maybe have more of an improvement in his superficial stats that makes people appreciate how good he already was? Yeah, I think it's Nick Pavetta, and I think everyone has talked. Everyone, everyone has written a Nick Pavetta breakout season uh, type story this off season, and 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 because it's mm-hmm. it, you know it's impossible not to 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 look at the numbers and think that. I mean, he 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 showed a lot of growth last year during the season. I think. You know, the numbers reflect that. I mean, this guy, they believe this guy is, is a is a really solid mid-rotation starter. Maybe even more than that. I, I don't know if he's more than that, but if he's a really solid number three, then, then they'll take that. I mean, that is a valuable piece uh, in 2019 Major League Baseball. And, and uh, he's the guy. I mean, I think, I think he's the guy who, who is really, you know, his ERA may catch up to, to the sort of the, you know, the feeling independent numbers that we saw last year and strikes a lot of guys out. He... Limits hard hit balls. He pitched away from slugging last year. He didn't give up a lot of home runs, at least in the first half of the year. He is your, your, you know, poster boy candidate for a breakout season. And, you know, those three guys, they, they need two of them to hit. You know, they need two of those three guys out of Pavetta, F1 of Alaska to, to really hit to be solid, dependable guys every fifth day for this to work. And, and, you know, it's why I think, you know, they've been tied to every starting pitcher. Um, the trade market and the free agent market, they went after Patrick Corbin. They were outbid for him on the six-year deal. They will keep looking for starters, but I, they are steadfast in their belief that, that at least two, and they think three of those guys will, will be reliable starters in the major league rotation. And I think they want to see how those guys do with the improved defense before they make any other changes. And that's why I suspect they'll let it go into July before they make a move, if they do make a move in the rotation. All right, so we always end these segments by asking for a win total prediction. Now, in the Phillies' case, it's complicated because these are probably not the Phillies that we're going to see on opening day or soon after it. So give us a a current prediction for for the roster as it stands now, and then give us also maybe a with Harper or Machado prediction. And I don't know if the, the with Harper is the same as the with Machado, but you can get as granular as you like. All right, let's keep it simple. I'll say current Phillies roster, I'll go with 86 wins. And Phillies roster with either Harper or Machado, I'll say 88 wins. All right, so you don't think it's that huge a a difference or an upgrade if they get one of those guys? I I do and I don't. I I guess I think think the division is going to be really good. Uh, I think that's probably playing into what I'm thinking here is that, you know, 88, you know, might win the division. I mean, because I think these teams are really going to beat up on each other. It's it's, it's going to be fun. I think the NL East is, is going to be really fun this year. All right. Well, you can follow Matt's coverage of the Phillies as the lead Phillies writer for The Athletic all season long. You can also find him on Twitter at his name, Matt Gelb. Thank you, Matt. You can stop roaming around the backfields now. <laughs> Thank you, guys. All right, that will do it for today and for this week. Thanks to everyone for listening. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. 
Following five listeners have already signed up to pledge some small monthly amount and keep the podcast going. Rob Silver, Maxwell McKenna, Darren Jones, Andrew Simon, and Will Benham Baker. Thanks to all of you. You can also join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectively wild. And by the way, some additional short-term incentive to join that Facebook group. Clay Dreslow, the developer of the PC game Baseball Mogul, the baseball sim game that lets you be the GM for a team and also take over on a game-by-game basis. He is making Baseball Mogul available for free to effectively wild Facebook group members between now and March 27th when the new edition of the game comes out. I will link to where you can join and then find the code that you can use. So thanks to Clay for taking it upon himself to make that available. It's definitely a game that a lot of Effectively Wild listeners would like. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. Keep your questions and comments for me and Jeff coming via email at podcast.fangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. You can pre-order my book, co-authored with Travis Sochik, The MVP Machine, comes out late this spring. We'll have another team preview next time. We'll be talking about the Angels and the Brewers. So we hope you have a wonderful weekend, and we will be back to talk to you early next week. One by one, the guests arrive. The guests are coming through. The broken-hearted many. The open-hearted few. And no one knows where the night's going.